Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. I remember as a sophomore in college, I began, you know, collecting and keeping track of all the scouting reports we were given and, and getting binders and circling, you know, place, you know, play calls and sets that I liked from other coaches. Um, really just trying to grow mentally and my understanding of the game in case I, I got into coaching. That was Matt Logie. He's the head men's basketball coach at Point Loma University, and he's today's guest. Welcome to Dan Dickow's Quarantine Series on the Scorebook Live Today podcast. As the world, particularly the world of sports, is shut down due to the coronavirus, we're ramping things up a notch here at Scorebook Live. Every weekday, Dan interviews an expert in the world of sports, from star hoopers and coaches like Steve Kerr, Jamal Crawford, and Doug Christie, to seven-time Mr. Olympia bodybuilder Phil. We hope you're entertained and maybe learn a thing or two as we navigate these uncertain times. The easiest way to tune in is by subscribing. In addition to our weekly Washington High School Sports News and Conversation podcast released Thursdays, hosted by myself, Andy Bueller, fellow reporter Todd Millis, Dan is bringing you interviews just like this one delivered five days a week. Head to wherever you get your podcast, subscribe for free, and while you're there, leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. Before we get to Dan's interview today, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Washington Federal. Washington Federal is a local bank and portfolio lender with more than 200 branches across eight states, more than 32,000 fee-free ATMs, 24-7 online and mobile banking with drive-up ATMs. And Washington Federal is a proud sponsor of Scorebook Live. They care deeply about high school sports and the communities that support them across the entire state of Washington. Head to WFDBank.com to learn how they can help you meet your financial goals. That's WAFDBank.com. Washington Federal, a neighbor you can count on. We hope everybody's staying safe and healthy. We're just as excited for high school sports to return as you are. Now, Dan Dickow. Dan Dickow, Scorbuck Live, Washington Today, our quarantine series. Typically, we just have a one podcast a week, but if you've been following our, our podcast recently, you've, you've noticed we've been releasing an interview a day with an expert in the world of sports. That could be a former or current athlete. It could be a front office executive, a coach. Uh, today, we've got a coach, a former player who became a really good coach, one of the bright young minds in the world of college basketball, regardless of classifications. Matt Logie, currently at Point Loma. He's got a ton of Pacific Northwest ties. Matt, how is life down in San Diego at one of the most amazing college campuses in the country? Uh, life is good down here. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful place to be quarantined. Uh, we're very blessed to to have a campus, you know, right on the ocean and, um, you know, great weather to, to, you know, still go outside and, and get exercise and get shots up and uh, be, you know, be as active as possible. Um, but obviously it's a unique time for everybody. You know, we'll get into a little bit of your coaching background <clears throat> and your mentors and your path shortly, but you just finished your first year down at Point Loma and you guys had a tremendous year before 
uh, everything happened in the world of, of sports and in college basketball, the season being shut down. How did your first year at Point Loma go at the D Division II level? Uh, <clears throat> I would say, you know, un unequivocally, it was uh, a, a huge success. Uh, we were <clears throat> really <clears throat> tasked with having to reload, you know, uh, a, a great deal of our roster <clears throat> during the uh, – during the transition last spring, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, you know, we had Dalton Hamas, uh, you know, leaving Point Loma early to, to go to the NBA G League and, and play for the San Antonio Spurs organization. Um, we had four other starters that all graduated and, and went on to play professionally. So to be able to win 24 games in year one, capture a PacWest tournament championship, uh, you know, safely qualify for an NCAA tournament bid, you know, even if we had not won the automatic bid, um, I think is a, a great foundation for us to build off of. And it was a lot of fun to, uh, to see that success um, so quickly. Success is something you know a lot of. You spent a number of years up here in the Spokane area in the Pacific Northwest at Whitworth. Um, Jim Hayford did a really nice job getting that program going, but then you took it to the next level. Um, I don't know the statistics off the top of my head. You've had tremendous success at, at Whitworth and now Point Loma. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the first thing that uh, we've really strived to do is, is just uh, I've always tried to surround myself with, with really good people, uh, with, with great assistant coaches. That's been critical in, in the success I've been a part of uh, as a head coach is, is having um, trusted, uh, intelligent, bright, hardworking guys that are you know, hungry to be a part of something special. Um, that was, you know, huge for us during this transition uh, to Point Loma. Uh, I was blessed and fortunate at Whitworth to have great coaching staffs there. Uh, currently, uh, the head coach at, at Whitworth, uh, Damian Jablonski, was, was with me for eight years. And so we had a lot of stability together. Um, so that's the first thing. And, and then I think always um, just trying to keep Keep your eye on the prize and, and what um, college athletics is, is really all about. And, and to me, you know, that comes down to, to trying to help kids be the best version of themselves, uh, help them improve and get better and, and, and be a part of um, championship success. You know, those are the memories that everyone takes with them. And so, you know, when you get everybody, uh, you know, pointing in the same direction and, and really aspiring to what's next and not what they've already accomplished, you you know, you can sustain it. Championships are what you and your family kind of pride themselves on. The, the first time our paths ever crossed is probably a great memory for you. It's one of the worst memories for me. It would have been the 1997 state tournament in the state of Washington. Uh, the semifinals played at the Kingdom. Uh, it was my senior year. You had a really good freshman group at Mercer Island. Uh, who played under your, your grandfather, Ed Peppel, who's a legend in the state of Washington. When you look back at your high school time, now I want to talk first as a player, what most do you remember as a player? Because you had a really good group uh, at Mercer Island of young guys that played together for four years. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the, the things that I remember the most are, are just the, the relationships. We had, um, like you said, a, a lot of really talented players through – throughout my four years of high school. You know, when I was a freshman, um, you know, Tarek Brown was a senior, Jamal Hill, who played linebacker at LSU. Um, and then, 
you know, my, as a sophomore, you had Brian Brown and Dyron Mobley, who were the core of, of that state championship team in 97. The following year, I think we had nine college players on our team at the Division One or two level um, and, and lost in the state semis. And then my senior year, we had five Division One players. One was a sophomore and four of us as seniors. And so uh, I just really remember being uh, constantly in a competitive environment where I had to be I had to be on it every day. I had, to, I had to be focused and locked in and really working hard to get better. Um, quite frankly, for me, as a kid that kind of grew late, was a, was a late bloomer, like I, I had to do that just to survive. And then when, when I got through the fire as a junior and senior um, and my body caught up to the, the you know, kind of the, the process I had been going through, um, you know, I was ready to, to really contribute in a big way and, and play in college. Yeah, that Mercer Island team uh, was very good. But like I mentioned, brings back some bad memories for me because the name he mentioned, Brian Brown, got hot down the stretch and, and knocked my Prairie Falcons uh, out and dashed our hopes at a state tournament. But your coach, Ed Peppel, he's your grandpa. Uh, I would imagine he's your coaching mentor or somebody you really look up to. You, you, look, you ask for advice at different times. But he's the all-time winningest coach in the state of Washington high school basketball history. What was it like to play for him? And the, are there any messages that you now use with your teams that you remember him giving? Well, I think a lot of the um, DNA of our basketball families at, at Whitworth and at Point Loma and tried to instill this at, at Lehigh when I was an assistant coach, a, a lot of those are – derived from my experiences at Mercer Island and, and what it means to be a part of something bigger than yourself. Um, you know, how to pass down uh, leadership qualities and mentorship to younger uh, athletes in your program. That was, a, I think, a core value of, of being a Mercer Island Islander. And, and um, I, I had great examples in front of me to follow. And I had great assistant coaches that poured into our life. Um, so, you know, I, I think I've I've tried to capture the essence of what made Mercer Island basketball special and unique. Um, it, it wasn't the winning. I mean, that, that's a byproduct. But the thing that I've tried to model most than anything else is, is just the how. You know, the, what did it look like on a daily basis? What was the process of my grandpa building relationships with his players and families? I had a unique experience because I was the coach's grandson. I probably had it harder than anybody else, even though the, the perception is always that you have it easier. You know, my grandpa uh, was a very competitive, disciplined coach. He comes from a Marine background. He played, you know, at the University of Utah against Bill Russell and Casey Jones in the NCAA tournament. So he knew, you know, what basketball looked like at a high level, and, and he really – kept those expectations very high for me and for everybody around me. And um, I've tried to, you know, just model a lot of those behaviors that led to consistency and success, but more importantly, um, you know, led to the lifelong relationships that he has with his players. That's why I got into coaching was because I felt compelled to pay that forward because it had such an impact on me. It's always interesting to hear current coaches explain and share how they got or became 
or grew into a passion for, for wanting to coach themselves. Let's take a step forward now to your college years. You, you, were, you played at Lehigh in the Patriot League. You were one of the best three-point shooters of all time. I believe you were their all-time three-point leading shooter before a current NBA star came through and broke your record. Uh, he, but, didn't break all, he didn't break all of them now. <laughs> yeah, I, hey, I hear you. I, I try to keep track of as many records <laughs> as I have myself. So I agree with you on that one. Good point. You went to Lehigh. You had a really nice career there. At what point in your college career did you realize, I want to grow this experience into becoming a coach? And how did your development go from player to now coach at Lehigh? No, I think it was, uh, it was kind of a process that was crystallized, crystallized for me um, sometime in the middle of my career. Um, you know, coming from Mercer Island, I think in high school, our, our team was thir uh, 81 and nine in the three years that I was on varsity. And so I was accustomed to winning a lot and I knew what that looked like and what that took. But the program at Lehigh, when I got there, uh, wasn't accustomed to winning. They had won one game uh, during my junior year of high school. I think they won seven games during my senior year of high school. And then uh, my first three years, you know, we won seven, then 12 uh, or 13, and then five games. And so, you know, I, I think over those first three years, I realized how important it was to have a culture in your program and how important leadership and, and, um, and, and the, the way that we had done things at Mercer Island um, had been proven to be, in my mind, um, the way to do it because I had seen it done a different way now and it, it didn't work. And so um, that, that was something that I, I started to study quite a bit. Uh, I remember as a sophomore in college, I began you know, collecting and keeping track of all the scouting reports we were given and, and getting binders and circling you know, place, you know, play calls and sets that I liked from other coaches, um, really just trying to grow mentally in my understanding of the game in case I, I got into coaching sooner than later. Um, but most of the, like, like you were in college, you know, uh, you're trying to be the best player you can be. I wanted to play, you know, as long as I could play in Europe. Um, and so I didn't really settle on going all into coaching until the spring of my senior year. And it really was, you know, basically uh, the way the decision, you know, was clarified for me was, do I want to go play, you know, low-level professional basketball for, you know, four to eight years if I'm lucky and maybe make some money and travel the world and then come back knowing that I want to coach, you know, in my late 20s probably, but have to start at the ground floor as a GA or a volunteer or an ops guy, you know, at that age and time in my life. And I just felt like if I could fast forward that process and invest that time into myself as a coach in the long run, it would pay, pay more dividends. And so, you know, when I graduated from Lehigh, I, you know, I had a top 40 degree in the country and went back home to Seattle and started training players at Emerald City Basketball Academy with Jason Basquet. Um, I would do that during the day. And then when that shift ended about five o'clock, I'd drive down to uh, downtown Seattle, grab dicks uh, and, and start my shift at six o'clock at Anthony's home port where I was busting tables. And so, you know, I had, busted my butt to get this great degree. And then I, here I am, 
you know, literally scraping clam chowder out of bowls to, to save up enough money just to have a, a crack or a chance to get my foot in the door at, in college coaching. And so that was a very, um, I think, humbling and, and good experience for me because it showed me how, how much I wanted it, you know. And um, as I look back now and fast forward, you know, there's, there's no way that I'm a, a, a head coach at Whitworth at age 30 if I hadn't made those choices and those investments. I, I love the fact that you talked about, you know, you going from one workout session as a coach uh, and supporting yourself and your passion and your dream with another job. It's very conducive to a lot of former players. Uh, and I'm sure you did this when you were playing. You go from one open gym to the next or one workout to the next open gym, always trying to find an advantage or an opportunity or be prepared for when the, the opportunity arises that you can make the most of it. So you go back now and you're, a, you're an assistant coach at Lehigh. And I know the story has been chronicled many times. Uh, CJ McCollum was not a very highly rated recruit. Um, you saw something, I know we've had conversations, you know, um, prior about this, but you saw something in him that, you were very interested in it. You got to know him. You got to know his family. And you thought there might be a chance that he could become a great player. For any player out there that might be listening to this, that might be a little undersized early in their career, or they might be what all the kids like to say right now, slept on, what would your advice be to those guys to keep working at it? And how was your relationship with C.J. McComb over the years and now to this day? Yeah, um, you know, I think the things that stood out about CJ as a player that, that made me excited, um, you know, we had, we had been working hard at Lehigh to, to find guys um, or teach guys, I guess, at that point in time, really how to play the game. You know, we, we, we were constantly talking about a staff, as a staff about, you know, how do we get guys that have a better feel for the game and, and see this play and, and, you know, make that pass and, and, you know, those things are, are hard to teach if guys don't see it. And in watching CJ, despite, you know, when he was young, despite his um, smaller stature at the time, his skill level was really high. His understanding of the game was really high. He was able to get things done, you know, despite not being the best athlete on the floor because of his mind and, and his skill set. And, you know, I looked at his older brother, who was four years his senior, and physically, he was 6'4", 190 pounds. And I, I just felt like, you know, his body will catch up to his mind and his skill. Um, and then the second thing, and this is the most important message to the, the players that are slept on, is, you know, his work ethic was at a professional level when he was 16 years old. I mean, he was shooting 300 to 500 makes a day with his older brother. He was working on game-specific shots, game-speed shots, um, how to get open in tight spaces. He was doing things um, with a, a maturity that was well, well beyond his years. And I think every great player that I've been around that, that made it to the NBA, you know, you would be on that list, Luke Ridenauer, um, guys that have any, had any sort of interaction, Jamal Crawford, you know, guys like that, they were obsessed with the game you know, and, and they knew in their mind that they would be an NBA player before everybody else figured out that they were talented enough or good enough to do so. And I think that's, 
that's a hard line to walk because the reality is most of us aren't right. And, and, and so the education piece is really important as a college coach, but you know, if you are blessed to have enough talent to do it, um, God given talent, you better have that really, really unique work ethic, uh, to go alongside it. Because if, if you, you put those two things together, you'll at least get to the ceiling of whatever your potential is and you'll have no regrets about it. I love hearing that you, I don't want to say you looked in the crystal ball, but you saw something that you believed in, in a player and lo and behold, it came to fruition. He is now one of the best guards in the NBA. It's, it's an awesome story to hear. That's for sure. I want to talk now about because of this, the uncertain times that we're in college sports are kind of in flux. Uh, coaches are in flux. Potential recruits are in, in, in flux. And I know you can't speak to any particular circumstance or player, but um, how does your staff handle your recruiting process right now? And how would you advise potential student athletes and their parents to go about this, this time to make sure uh, they're prepared for when either things open back up or coaches uh, are able to see them in their best light? Yeah. I mean, I think um, one of the, one of the most probably overstated um, mantras out there is, is, you know, how important it is to have exposure. You know, everyone talks about having exposure, you know, and, and there's an element of truth to, to that necessity. You know, there, there's no doubt that I, I don't get a scholarship, you know, to Lehigh unless, you know, that coaching staff was exposed to me at a tournament, right? And so we've had these structures in place with AAU tournaments in April and AAU tournaments in, in June now and July. We've had this structure in place um, where that was the exposure structure and that's how everybody thinks that players get found. What people don't realize is before all of those models existed, college coaches were still finding the right players for their level and for their team and they were just doing it through different means. You know, high school coaches were more important back then. Uh, you know, relationships with local newspaper writers or, or, or former players, and, and uh, there was probably more regionalization. I think that may be a, a byproduct of, of, of this uh, pandemic in, in that, you know, coaches uh, are, are somewhat forced to, to stay more local because it's easier to know who those players are. I think what we've tried to do as a staff is just stay really strong in our relationships and our roots. You know, we have obviously great ties to the Northwest and, and Washington State high school coaches. We're literally the basketball community that I grew up in. And so while I might not be able to go out and see as many kids play, you know, when I pick up the phone and, and call, you know, Naylon Sood from uh, Mount Tahoma or, or, you know, any of these guys, uh, you know, Bill Backamus at Mark Morris or Gavin Cree at Mercer Island, you can go down the list of, you know, uh, longtime uh, high school coaches in, in, the, in the community, you know, everyone knows who the players are. And so um, if you have the, the relationships with the people that are around those, those players and, and you trust their opinion, um, that's certainly very helpful. Um, we're, we're very fortunate today in today's day and age that we can get a lot of stuff done on video. You know, we can watch a lot of videotape and evaluate that way. Um, you know, I've, 
I've been fortunate to recruit a number of players from all over the world, Australia, Belgium, Germany, Spain, Turkey. Um, not one time have I gotten up on a plane and, and, and been able to see those players in person. So you have to learn how to watch those films and calibrate competition level and, and transferable skill. Um, but, you know, that's what we as coaches get paid to do. And, and um, you know, I think if, if you trust your eyes and trust your relationships, you know, players are going to get to the right places and the right levels. I love hearing that, that you feel everything will work out in the end. This isn't uh, going to be a, a huge roadblock, more of just kind of a, a little bump in the road for players and coaches uh, building a, a great career for each of their themselves and their programs last question matt before i let you go and and i know we've talked a lot about the coaching aspect and the coaching side of things for you but i can only imagine there's a part of you that still watches the game as a fan and a lot of people are watching this michael jordan documentary the last dance as a fan one give me your quick overview on this last dance uh documentary and then the second part of the question is when you're watching the game of basketball as a fan not as a coach who do you like to watch well uh the documentary has been awesome uh you know as i think everybody will tell you you know for for guys like you and me that grew up and, and were in high school you know literally middle school and high school as as uh as that team was blossoming you know that's that's when I fell in love with the game you know and and everybody that was our age wanted to be like Mike you know and um, I think the the thing that I've appreciated the most in watching the documentary is you know I, I think there was always this um, perception of Phil Jackson that he was some you know like horse whisperer or kind of like you know guy sending smoke signals up to the, you know, clouds and, and this really unique, um, you know, coaching mind and mentor. And, and I just find it fascinating that, that people were so amazed that a coach would suggest uh, to his players that they read books about things that are not basketball related, you know, like the fact that he would want to develop his players' minds and their spirit and their soul in addition to their basketball ability was such a far out concept at that point in time. Um, that's been really, really interesting to think about. Um, I've, I've really appreciated also, uh, you know, the relationship dynamics that you can, you can see between Jordan and Pippen. You know, I, I think I always looked at that relationship as, you know, a, a big brother and a, a stepchild type of thing, you know, where Jordan was clearly the number one and probably, you know, may have always tried to assert himself that way. But when you see them talk about one another and uh, talk about the different experiences that they had, you can tell the level of respect that Jordan had for Pippen and how great that was and, and his appreciation for how Scotty made him better. And I, people don't talk about Jordan in that sense anymore um, enough, I think. You know, the, the, the fact that he was uh, ultimately cast as – kind of this guy who can only score, but yet he really wanted to prove to people that he was a winner, you know, and that he was a team guy. 
And, you know, I think that is really the most beautiful thing about Michael Jordan and probably the least talked about in all of this debate for who's the goat and all that, you know? And so that's been fun to, uh, to see really kind of come out in the documentary a little bit more. Well, Matt, we really appreciate your time here on the Scorebook Live Washington Today podcast during our quarantine series. You are a Pacific Northwest guy through and through. Uh, you just happen to have a detour down to Point Loma where you're going, going to continue to have tremendous success. So uh, until I see you again in the Northwest, I wish you nothing but the best of luck. Stay healthy with your great family and appreciate you joining. Thanks a lot, Dan. Appreciate you having me. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen.